This is Joy. And this is Claire. And this is Joy and Claire. A weekly podcast talk show about the things that bring us together. Make us happy. Make us whole. Make us human. Hey guys, this is Joy. And this is Claire. And this is Joy and Claire. And very excited. We've been talking for a while that I was going to have my naturopathic doctor on the show and Dr. Cook is on the show. We have so much to cover. (laughs) And um, we're going to try to answer all of your questions. But I just want to give a warm welcome to Dr. Kayla Cook. Hi, Dr. Cook. Hi, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah, so we want to start out really just kind of general around your background and education um, and what your schooling was. Um, Just kind of talk about the path to becoming a naturopathic doctor. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think most people are pretty confused by what that actually is. Um, I, I grew up in the like Southeast and everyone back home thinks I went to Hogwarts for medical school. So <laughs> I think it's something that's not really well understood. So naturopathic doctors actually go to medical school. And that's sometimes very surprising. People think that it's more of like a nutrition program or like a functional medicine certificate or something like that. But we actually do go through medical school where we get all the clinical training and work, you know, in rotations and kind of do all the conventional medical school stuff, kind of like as you would going into primary care. Um, naturopathic doctors in our medical school, we don't necessarily like go on to specialize in um, like surgery or like one specific thing, like a gastroenterologist or an endocrinologist like that. So kind of by the end of that, you know, four-year medical school and then two to three years of residency, you are more um, like primary care is kind of the main, the main idea of what you're accomplishing as a naturopathic doctor. Um, It's kind of like two med schools in one though, because while you have to learn all the conventional medicine, like pharmaceuticals and everything like that, you also are learning herbs and nutrition and um, all kinds of different physical medicine. And so lots of different modalities, as well as just like the naturopathic philosophy and the lens in which we kind of look at a case and see see medicine. So um, it's really, really fun um, because you get to learn a lot more in your tool. Your toolkit is much larger. then you, you know, kind of come out of conventional school where it's largely kind of surgery and pharmaceuticals are the main treatment options. Um, but this becomes kind of a big safety issue I've seen in terms of vetting to find like an actual credentialed naturopathic doctor. And I would say like when you're, if you're looking for one in your area, um, there's a website I can tell you guys about that you can sort of search for doctors that are actually licensed, you know, medical school um, providers. But that term naturopathic doctor is actually quite protected. So there are other um, practitioners out there who maybe have done like a certificate of naturopathy or like different kind of uh, short like weekend classes or kind of several months like program type of things where they get a name or like letters that sound a lot like a naturopath or a naturopathic doctor. So NDs have kind of stopped using the term naturopath because it's sort of a more ambiguous term that isn't necessarily, um, doesn't mean that you're a doctor or went to medical school. And that's uh, really important because if you're looking for a doctor who does things a little bit differently um, and you stumble upon someone who hasn't actually done clinical medicine, it, it could be very dangerous. And we talk about a similar distinction a lot between like a nutritionist and a dietitian, mm-hmm. where, you know, a lot of people can kind of call themselves. So it sounds like it's similar, like a lot of different types of people can, of people can call themselves a naturopath. Correct. And that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. But naturopathic yes. doctor is the one you want. Yeah. 
for someone who went to medical school. Yeah. And we can sometimes get pretty lazy and we just say naturopath, right? But I think doctors have kind of stopped doing that just because of the confusion in the public. But it is extremely confusing. An example, even here in Colorado, a few years back, um, I got an email from a patient who was freaking out saying like, oh my gosh, there's this you know bill going through that's going to prevent my ability to see a natu- you know, see naturopaths. And, and at the time, the Colorado board was actually pushing for legislative efforts to have more um, kind of more of the governing body to protect that term and to, you know, kind of go not go after, but like prevent people who aren't medical professionals or licensed from diagnosing and treating. Um, and so it was actually a really positive thing that was happening. I was like, send me the email, you know, what's like, what are you talking about? And she sent it to me and it was actually from like the kind of the non-indie board of like the, the naturopath, like the certificate ones that are not really doctors. Um, that was extremely convincing and trying to get people to vote against this bill so that they would have access to, you know, quote unquote, medical care. Um, their name was very similar to the Colorado Association of Naturopathic Doctors. Their logo was very similar. So it was almost like it had come from the co and board itself, which it actually had not. Um, it opened my eyes to like just how kind of convincing and a little bit scary that can be. Um, and that ended up passing. And so it was a positive thing. Now there is a lot more um, kind of protection within that title usage. So people who are saying they're that can actually now get in trouble. And so they're doing it less and it's safer for the public. But yeah, it's kind of terrifying as a naturopathic doctor to see that happening because people just don't really know any better and are thinking they're getting somebody that you know can help them with some serious health issues who really don't have any experience or ability to even interpret labs or do that well. Um, and so it's it's kind of a doctor's worst nightmare for that to be happening and why most, I think, conventional medical doctors think naturopathic doctors are quacks and not real doctors because it's just a completely confusing um, mess of nomenclature, I think. So a question we got a lot of was, and you really explained a lot of this just now, but like, what would you go to a naturopathic doctor for rather than going to your PCP? And can you have a naturopathic doctor as your PCP? Yeah, I was actually going to say, I wouldn't necessarily think of it as like one or the other. Um, And I tell people all the time that I'm working with, like, I want you to have a working relationship with a PCP or, you know, some, someone in the conventional field. Um, Because really, you know, it comes down to using the best of both worlds for the best care for a person. It doesn't have to be this, um, you know, one or the other kind of thing where you either have your natural doctor or your conventional doctor and they can't exist together. Um, I think that there's a lot that you can get done more quickly through the conventional kind of insurance system that like it would just be a longer kind of drawn out process for me to do that here in Colorado. And another kind of annoying difference is every state's a little bit different in how that's like monitored and the laws around how Indies can practice, kind of the scope of practice, if you will. Um, so I, I don't think that you have to have one or the other. Um, the integrative medicine, right, is kind of you hear that term a lot. And I think of that as just using the best of both worlds to um, to really dive into so what's going on with somebody and get them feeling better. Because at the end of the day, I think all of our goal as doctors is just to have people healthy and thriving and feeling good and not this battle of ego of like natural versus non-natural. I'm glad you brought that up because from the get-go, when I started working with you, when I would talk about this either on social media or on the podcast, we would get some comments, not a lot, of just like, why do you hate Western medicine kind of thing? And it's just like, I oh, no. don't. And it yeah. it truly was like, if people hear what they want to hear, but it, you don't have to pick a side. And you and I have talked over the months about how my PCP is really great. And I think she's very supportive of my choices to work with you and how I work with you. 
But there's just no way I would have been able to find you had I not first worked with a primary care physician and finding out that my blood work was off, you know? So it's interesting how people think that they have to pick pick a camp when it can really work well together if done properly. Yeah. And it's actually kind of heartbreaking for me because people will either call or come in and they'll, you know, say they're on an antidepressant or something and they've been on it for years and it's helped them get through some really dark times. And, you know, they come in and they're like express a fear that I'm going to take them off all their medication or, you know, scold them for being on medication. (laughs) And, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, I, my job is to work with my patients to get them feeling great and not really so, so determined about getting off medication if it's helping them. Right. I think, you know, sometimes people's goals are to stay on their medication. Sometimes they want to get off of them. And so my job is to help accomplish the goals and whatever these are and not push my, you know, personal agenda on every person I ever see. And, um, you know, and with that example of antidepressants, it's like some people are really uncomfortable being off of it entirely, but we can get it down to like the lowest dose possible. And so they can get, you know, a lot of their, um, you know, the side effects and things that they may be experiencing, like low libido or things like that, you know, come back and they can be kind of in this balanced state of like the medication they're using it for, you know, as much as they need it and then other stuff to help to not have to be on so much medication. So you can kind of like, there's this whole spectrum of, of it. It's not really black or white. And I'm also like, as you know, Joy, like not really a, I, like a, I think natural medicine can even be done very conventionally. And I think you can fall into the trap of looking at medicine as like, well, what natural non-toxic substance can I give, you know, i.e. a supplement in lieu of Lexapro, right? And that's like the, you know, most backwards way to think about it. It's not about replacing, you know, drugs with nutrition or, you know, nutrition is like the most common thing people think of. It's like, it's always food, but there's so much more to health than just food. Even though it's very important, it's just one kind of leg of that stool. And I always say, a one-legged stool doesn't bear weight, right? So there's a lot to look at and it's not really even about, you know, pharmaceuticals versus supplements. And I think that's what really gets confused um, in people's minds about natural medicine versus conventional kind of as we think of it, the healthcare system. So you're saying that people will often try to replace it with a natural supplement when that's really not the goal. It shouldn't be the goal to like replace a drug with a supplement. Correct. Like you're not always going for like the quote unquote, like natural version of everything. No, because you're still band-aid. Like a natural substance can still be a band-aid, right? And and those things have a band-aids have a time and a place, whether that's a pharmaceutical or a nutritional supplement, whatever. But at the end of the day, the goal should be to restore physiology, like the physiology to function how it should, because there is this innate ability for the body to heal and to thrive in the face of all kinds of staggering, you know, issues, yet we're just not taught like how to do that. And so we we're in our current healthcare system. It really is. We're given, given a substance for every symptom we have. And so we kind of take that with us as we seek, you know, healthcare in any other way. And so people are usually really surprised that they're not, I don't like them to be on a billion supplements forever. And the goal, even if we are using medicines, like natural medicines, the goal isn't that they're on them for the rest of their life. Right. Um, I have a patient with Crohn's right now who commented last week, she was like, I'm really surprised at how few things I'm actually taking. And I'm like, well, you're doing a ton of things in terms of like lifestyle and, you know, like health promoting activities. But yeah, I don't need you on 30 different supplements to kind of coax your body into this, um, you know, different altered state that won't last if we remove that. So one of the questions that Joy has gotten a lot throughout working with you is how much does it cost? 
And one of the things that you kind of alluded to even a couple minutes ago was, you know, that conventional medicine tends to be within the insurance paradigm and naturopathic doctors maybe are less so. Is it possible to find a naturopathic doctor who takes conventional medical insurance or is that? okay? No, absolutely. And it really varies by state. And that's why it's honestly just so ungodly confusing Um, because like in Colorado, for instance, you know, we're even though I'm credentialed as a you know primary care doctor in Oregon, I have a DEA license and I can prescribe medications in that state. Like here, I can't do any of that, <laughs> right? I don't have um, prescriptive rights in Colorado, which is honestly fine by me because you know I can use you know the PCP or you know an integrative approach to be able to get those things done when they need to, um, and I can just kind of do you know do my magic and do what I'm good at and like to do. Um, but yes, there are a lot of states where you, where insurance does cover cover the care, and I think that's going to become over the next five to 10 years, a lot more common across the US. Um, but right now it's pretty limited. Um, you can find information about that, especially on the American, the, so the AANP website, which is the um, American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. Um, they have information about the different like scope of practice in different states. And there's also like a find an ND tool where you can type in kind of your area and see, you know, what doctors are near there. Um, and kind of, I know you had asked about how to find a doctor. That's one of the ways, but yeah, Absolutely. In Oregon, for instance, where I went to medical school, um, you know, I, we took all the insurances. We took, um, you know, Medicaid, like we were a primary care home, essentially. So, um, yes, that is possible. Um, it's just kind of slowly starting to spread out to other states and um, every year kind of grows and changes. So, um, yes. And check the area where you're living and mm-hmm. do your own research. And I think that we can post a link to the website too of where to find a doctor and how to look that up for wherever people are people are living. Um, I know we also have international listeners, which I think is probably just a whole can of worms of like what other countries are, will cover <laughs> in terms of medical yeah. care, which is totally different mm-hmm. from the United States. But I want to quickly ask, and I don't want to open this up too much, but when you were talking about supplements, it made me think so much of like how... Claire and I often see influencers pushing supplements or drinks or powders or whatever. On a scale of one to 10, how crazy does that drive you? Like how much harm is that? (laughs) Is that like, you know, are we overthinking like, oh my gosh, I need to take fish oil when you don't even know if you need it? Like, what is that about? Um, so to answer the scale of one to 10 question, 10 being like the most annoyed, I'm assuming, yep. um, probably like a seven. Um, and okay, I so not too bad. <laughs> what annoys me more than that. And I would say this annoys me to like 10 plus, um, is the companies now that are like trying to do that with labs. <laughs> um, they're like the, the send home like lab kits and things. Yes. Like that, Everly that Well or whatever. Really yeah. Terrifies me. And it's, scary. And I've seen it do harm. I've seen people come in, you know, who've done not to name names, but done different tests where they've determined, okay, I can't eat any food. You know, how can you help me? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) We, you know, the the human body would not have survived this long if we just like lost all capacity to tolerate food. Right. So I've seen people do that for a long term and then kill off, you know, all their microbiome. They're sick as a dog. They can't eat anything. And then we have to really backtrack and get them built back up. And so the labs drive me far more crazy than the supplements because you can usually, you know, with the proper education, people can stop those things and there's less harm done. But with labs, I feel like it's a, it's kind of towing that line of a lot more scary to me. So 
Yeah, definitely a little bit more wary of the company. Okay, that's good to know to, because those yeah. are really popping up everywhere of just well, submitting and, your blood and getting and results back. And what you'll see and, with them now, and I think what's driving it is they'll do like a, like a test kit and then send you uh, a, a customized, air quotes, list of what supplements to take from their company in, in response to your labs, right? Um, and that's just really not how medicine was ever intended to be. And doesn't, it's just, yeah, that, so that really, really worries me. It probably more than annoys me. It just kind of scares me. Concerning because you see people coming in. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically, can you tell our audience what you, do you treat everything? Do you have like a specialty that you really like to treat in your practice? So my specialty, I guess what I like to treat really comes down to the person, not so much the condition, which is maybe not the most popular opinion. Because I know everyone, especially when you're coming out of medical school, they tell you to specialize and pick something so you can, you know, market to that. And I was just like, I've always liked being a generalist. I like seeing everything. I like the variety. I like the the constant learning of all the different things. And um, I, I find that I really, really like working with kind of digestive disorders, I guess I would say it's something I really just like doing because most people with those like are suffering so intensely all the time and you never, like you can never see it from an outside perspective, but they're miserable and uncomfortable. Um, and to see them, you know, get better and to be able to thrive is just really rewarding. But, but really I like seeing everything. I like people who are committed and who you know, are willing to put in the work to get better and not just view it as like, you know, what 30 things can I take to, you know, not have to then worry about taking care of my body in a general sense every day. Um, so it's not so much a condition as as it is just a you know readiness and a willingness to change and to view the body in the respectful lens that we should. Those people are the ones I like to work with and you know get good results because they're in the you know their mindsets there and that's a really important piece to getting better. Yeah, I think that was one of the first things that obviously I noticed when I started working with you is you know, you first do the 15 minute call to kind of say, can I help you or not help you just like generally speaking, just right out of the gate. But then we sat together with my husband, Scott, for like two hours, (laughs) getting like a full like background and idea of whether or not like if I had the support system around me to get better too, which is really important, because if you're living in a household where someone may be like sabotaging your progress, I think it's really difficult. I mean, even if they're not consciously doing it. But I think that this takes such a lifestyle change. And I want to share something really quickly that you and I talked about at one of my recent appointments was like, it's not ever that I can go back to what I was doing before. Like a lot of people will ask like, Oh, so can you go back to eating dairy? Or can you go back to (laughs) exercising? And it's like, actually, now that I've gone through this and come to the other side ish, I feel like I don't want to do that anymore because that's what got me in trouble in the first place. So it's not even that I would want to go back to that because I saw the damage that it was doing. So I am not at a loss. You know, I'm not sitting here crying. I mean, there's some days I miss cheese on pizza, but, (laughs) but like there's, I'm not at a loss because I now see how good I feel and I'm going to keep that up. And that's like my choice. So it's interesting how people kind of project that they, that you have to go back to what you were doing before where I'm like, no, that's really what got me in trouble. You know, and a, a point to that, um, cause I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Gretchen Rubin, her, the four tendencies. No, yeah. We talk about that all yeah. the time. So I'm like a hardcore rebel, right? Um, like a hundred percent through and through rebel. And so when you, you know, in your, your experience, how you're saying you don't really ever want to go back to dairy as an example, um, which is beautiful. Cause I think most people who experience feeling better, you're had their standard changes and they're like, you know what, if this is what it takes, I'm going to do this. But 
me as a rebel and a lot of people I see who are rebels, you kind of like the, the point is the choice. Like you said, it's your choice. Like that's what I want to really be able to accomplish with the patients I work with is teaching them, you know, a, how their body works and b you know, how to day to day respond to take care of it in the best way. But that becomes over time, you know, the, the power shift changes because as you know, how the body works and how to take care of it, you get to decide in every moment what you want to do. And if you decide to eat the pizza with the cheese on it, like that's fine, but that's your choice. And you know, you know, you may have a rough few days and then your body's going to recover. And for the most part, your choice may be to, um, to avoid it, but sometimes it might be worth it. And the point is like over time, you know, you're the one empowered to, to take charge of your health and whatever you choose to do. And so for for my personal journey, I was way more back and forth than you because I had to constantly test it and rebel against it and think it was stupid and just see the influences of my body very specifically to finally be like, okay, yeah, I should probably calm down with this, right? And really solidified in my own experience what I needed to do to feel better. And and now at this point, many, many, many years into my journey, it's like, you know, my threshold is different and my body is a lot more resilient. And so the choice choices that I make now may be different than I made 15 years ago. But the idea is that over time, because like you said, the, you said the work never kind of goes away, but you get to dictate it. And I think there's just something so powerful for people when they finally understand what's causing their suffering. It takes away so much of the stress of it. And, and I've had people before who we maybe uncover a food intolerance or something that they really don't want to give up. And they're like, you know what? I you know love potatoes or whatever it is, but I really am going to keep eating them. And at least now I know you know, why I don't feel good and why I have migraines and that's fine. I'm like, and that's your choice, right? It's not like that's, I think that's such a cool thing to see in like a weird way. Um, just people kind of getting their power back with their health. And, um, and that's why education and all of that is so important for what I like to do with patients um, is because we're just really not offered that kind of education ever. Um, and that's really the crux of so much of the, of the problem in our minds is just not understanding stuff. There's a lot of guilt behind that too, I think wrapped up in, I need to do what my doctor says. And so I think when we're talking about changes and talking to a naturopathic doctor is, you know, you're, you're giving the information and the patient is saying, I'm going to do this or not do this. Mm -hmm. And I think there's times that some of these shifts may be so big that patients will then get nervous to tell you that, oh my gosh, I had cheese where it's like, no, you're not here to guilt or shame. You're just yep. here to say, here's the information. I'm going to support you however I can. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting. I mean, I've definitely, I feel like everyone I know who's lactose intolerant goes through this struggle, like on, like on a daily basis. They're like, I know that by eating this cream cheese bagel, like I'm going to pay for this in an hour and a half, but man, I've been craving a cream cheese bagel for a week and this is so worth it. Or the migraine thing where you're like, as long as I know this isn't a brain tumor and I know <laughs> that it's being caused by potatoes, like I'll take the migraine meds and that's uh -huh. fine. You know, but I've just, now that I know it's not th something that like is yeah. going to get worse or that, you know, whatever the case may be. And I think that it's funny, joy. So you're talking about the four tendencies. Joy is like a pretty classic obliger with like a pretty strong <laughs> questioner wing. Uh -huh. So like, but like once you convince joy, that like this is why you should do something, she's like, great. I'm, that's, I accept. Yes. And yeah. then just like goes with it. So this is like a good, but I think that it's true that a lot of people kind of to go off what Joy was saying of, you know, they think that they're what their doctor says, like, is just the law. I think a lot of doctors act that way, too, where they kind of feel like my husband's a nurse. He um, up until about a year or so ago was working on the telemetry unit, which is like and you guys know what this is. But just for people listening, it's sort of an, like a cardiac step down unit 
where you get a lot of people who have late stage chronic illnesses that are a lot of times really caused by a lifestyle, by something that is is happening or is not happening in their lifestyle or in their education or in their access to medical care. And what I mean by that is to say that like a lot of times it's not, you can't fix them and then send them back out into the world. Like these are people who will have this problem for the rest of their lives um, unless they were to make an absolutely monumental lifestyle change that is oftentimes not available to them. And in that scenario, Brandon would would often express this frustration of like, you know, I don't know why I even try to help these people because they really don't want to help themselves. Like they just want the pill and they want to go home. And they want that relationship with their doctor where all they, where their responsibility is just to do what exactly what their doctor tells them to do, not ask questions, not, you know, worry about anything outside of that conversation. And to me, that brings up the question of like, who is your, you know, you're talking about you, you prefer to work with people who are really, obviously, you know, you want to work with the people who really want to be there, the people who are really going to put in the work. How do you help people evolve that mindset from like, no, like this should be a two-way conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, planting a lot of seeds and letting them grow. <laughs> So yeah, what you're speaking to is something that is was is really heartbreaking in the primary care field. And honestly, even being a primary care naturopathic doctor in Oregon was difficult because you oftentimes get people who are coming in um, who maybe just aren't ready or don't really understand they make they make changes and they're just like, let's get me the pill at whatever, you know. And it it just as a doctor wears on you because I don't think that any doctor sur- survives medical school and all the kind of hell that comes along with that without a heart to help people and get them better. Um, so it's not this war against natural versus alternative. But for example, like to your question, when people come in and I can really tell and, you know, that kind of that two hour sit down that Joy was talking about after that initial phone call, if I can really tell, and, you know, at this point, I have a lot better spidey sense about it because I've seen enough things um, that it's really not the right time for them. You know, there's no judgment about that. But, you know, I usually have a conversation with like just being very transparent, honest about what is going to be required in the process to change um, and that I'm not going anywhere. When you're ready, I'm here, right? Um, usually I'll give them a book that I think might kind of help to just start to get their wheel spinning about certain things. Um, and oftentimes I'll hear from those people in six to nine to 12 months later, you know, I think everyone's journey and their timeline is unique to them. Um, and there's no judgment in that. You know, it's like, I wasn't ready to take care of my health until I was, right? I think education and patience are really the two key ingredients for getting people who maybe aren't there yet to start to open up their mindset. Like we can't, we can't force those things upon people, you know, as much as we would like to. And where I've kind of learned this really is through my, um, like personal, like my family and friends, because I think a lot of what drives at least me and a lot of people I know to become a doctor is to have the skills to help people that you love, right. To help your family. You know, you saw your parents grow up with, you know, heart disease or whatever, and you want to have solutions to help them live a long, happy life. And, but oftentimes your family and friends don't listen to you, right. Because you're, uh, what do you know? You're their kid or their sister or whatever. And, and you, and so I've learned over time that like, you kind of have to lead by example with compassion, um, and kindness and a willingness to have conversations when people start to ask questions. And I tell a lot of my patients too, because what's I think so beautiful about working with people like Joy and everyone else I see is that after they kind of have reached the point of, you know, getting to their goals, like there's this domino effect of people in their lives that I may never see or know or ever hear from that see them doing things and 
paying attention to their diet and working on stress management and drinking water and just doing some basic things and they're feeling good, their energy's high and they're just vibrant. And so people start asking questions. And so by the education that I can kind of help pass along to anybody I work with, that ripples out into all of their lives too, right? And so I tell my patients all the time, like over the course of this process, I guarantee you people are going to be coming to you and asking you questions. And your job isn't to uh, force them to believe what you think. Your job is to just be there for them as they're kind of in that space and, you know, offer a safe place to land when they're starting to question some of those things. Because especially with diet and lifestyle changes, it really challenges a lot of um, cultural norms, you know, social structures, it can be extremely triggering. It can, it's it, so it's so much more to it than just the simplicity of like avoiding a food, right? So it's layered and it's complicated and you have to give people space to sort that out in a safe place. <laughs> and I think that's what people that I work with, we always have that conversation. And I think they're able to hold that space for other people in the world. And, and I think that's how it slowly changes is that you just don't force people to do things when they're not ready, but you offer, you know, a kind ear to listen when they have questions. I've saved Scott some money on buying those boxed cleanses. <laughs> you know how I feel to, about those. He used to always get those like once a year. Oh my god! Like it's just, just don't do yeah. it. It's well, so, and I, I, oh, it's so amazing to see, like, because as one person, like, I can't, I'm limited in the amount of people in my lifetime that I can help, right? And if my goal in my life is to help as many people as I possibly can, you know, my patients are those beacons of helping other people. And I think that's what, like, constantly is so humbling to me in the process of doing what I do is that it's like my patients are the ones that do the work and they're the ones that are kind of changing the world. And so it's just really cool to be a part of that process. It's interesting that you bring up that a lot of the things you do can be kind of triggering because honestly, when Joy first started talking about, oh, you know, I'm cutting out dairy and there's this like sugar timing thing I have to do. And, <laughs> and yeah. we got a lot of people who were like, oh my gosh, Joy, you're going to get an eating disorder. Yeah. You know, yeah. people were like, don't work with this doctor if she wants to do an elimination diet. Elimination diets oh, are, you know, yeah, it was interesting. Our diet culture. And we yeah. had to really address that head on and be like, listen, guys, there is more to this. There's so much more to the story here yeah. on this mm -hmm. podcast. You know, I would love to come on and talk about diet culture because that's something that I am so adamantly against and passionate about. So mm -hmm. I think this is a really, really important thing you're bringing up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we can, we can do part three and four and five and two. Um, can you <laughs> yeah, speak just on, yeah, on that topic though? Cause I wanted to bring this up was about food intolerances and how you test for them. There's a lot of like bogus stuff out there. That's like, Oh, yeah. food intolerance tests don't work. And, and, and truly, when we talked about that and why my treatment plan included what it did, I kept saying, this is for my plan. There's more to it. It's not just I have to eliminate it for the sake of it, mm -hmm. quote unquote, it's bad for you because that's not what it's about. It's about healing my whole body and my yeah. system's a little bit of a wreck. Um, but talk a little bit about why you, well, not not really why, but how you do the food intolerance testing um, okay. in your practice. Yeah. And I think that's a really good question too, because there's like nomenclature here is also a big confusing point. Um, Cause there's lots of different ways to test for food reactivity. Um, and to just like really quickly before I get into that kind of back step to the, you know, eating just like put, saying something about that. I think that's a really important consideration. And one that as a doctor, you know, I, my biggest nightmare would be to give a patient a recommendation that triggered any kind of disordered eating pattern. Right. And I actually work with a lot of women with that history. And so we talk about this, you know, ad nauseum, and that's why I'm seeing people constantly because we're, you know, I'm either not 
changing their diet if that's something that's really close to the surface and that I know would be an easy trigger, even if it potentially could help lower inflammation, not worth it if it's going to trigger um, something that's serious. And so like individual context is really important. And that's, again, kind of going back to like working with an actual trained provider is so critical because if you, you can see how you could so easily do harm without meaning to if you don't have the right clinical experience. And you see capacity. people weekly, especially at the beginning for so many reasons reasons, but, yes. but to keep eyes on them. You see people I weekly. Know, I, I joke to my patients. I'm like, you're never going to get far enough away from me for like anything really to go wrong. <laughs> um, and I have several people even right now that I see probably three to four times a week because they're in really critical situations and I'm not willing to let them like they, they need to have pretty constant help. And, and there's no shame. Like just, there's, I don't know. It's not like, I think people can kind of feel like, Oh, I'm just so broken. And it's not even that that's the case at all. It's like, you know, the body is the strongest thing in the world. And um, I never think of it as broken, but some, we need so much education and support. And that's where I really like to lend that as especially early on in the face of changes. But um, so, so diet and making changes there is so individual. And I want to really stress that because I think especially in our social media world, it's so easy to kind of jump on, you know, the next kind of trendy diet or try this thing. And oftentimes it's bred out of a place of really a sincere desire to help themselves. And I think that's a really beautiful quality, but we're kind of misled, right? We don't necessarily get the correct information. And if we're lucky enough to find correct information, it lacks all the context of our individual clinical case. So that's where having a, you know, a trusted provider is really helpful because they can kind of navigate that with you. But, but if, if it is somebody that I choose to do, you know, a food, food testing with in any capacity, um, you know, I choose to do food intolerance evaluations and, and that's different in kind of what we're looking at compared to um, some of the other things we hear. So there's like food allergy testing, there's food sensitivity testing, food intolerance evaluate, like there's all these different kind of ways of looking at food reacting in the body. And I think it's important to consider the mechanisms there. So so when I, like I don't see food anymore, um, and I come from like a long line of really probably pretty disordered eating women in my you know my family, and you know always dieting for various reasons, and you know even in my own journey of food intolerances, I really rebelled against it because I had this just kind of hatred of eliminations and restriction. And it just really triggered all these places in me that, you know, so my journey was different than yours, Joy. And I think everyone has their own journey, but, but we're looking at a different mechanism and kind of having to look at like, like if you go to your MD allergist, for example, like they might do food allergy testing, right? And that's looking at like an immune response. Like you eat peanuts or shellfish and your throat closes up. You need an EpiPen, you need to go to the hospital, like anaphylactic shock, right? An immediate kind of immune sensitivity or immune reaction to the food. That's it's really like the only true allergy and why, you know, MDs often roll their eyes at any kind of practitioners who are doing, you know, food sensitivity testing that aren't allergy testing because allergy is like, that's, it's a different mechanism. So it's kind of, cause people, again, it's nomenclature. People throw around these words, like they're synonymous and they really mean very different things. So like, for instance, food sensitivity testing that you probably can get through some of those online kits or even through, you know, natural providers that are looking more like an IgG or delayed sensitivity kind of response, that's still an immune kind of test, but it's not really a true allergy. So MDs get really frustrated when their patients come in and say, I'm allergic to gluten. And it's really an IgG sensitivity um, because technically speaking, that isn't really a true allergy. Yet for simplicity's sake, a lot of us will just say the word allergy because it's easier to understand, right? So kind of breaking down what they mean is really important to just shed light again on like educating around what the heck even is, is all of that. Yeah. Like for taking me, for example, I'm not allergic to dairy. I'm not going to die if I, I'm not going to mm -hmm. have an allergic reaction where I can't breathe right. if I eat dinner, dairy, mm -hmm. but mine's more of a sensitivity or would you say it's, 
yeah, I would sensitivity, say intolerance, intolerance. Yeah, I'd say intolerance. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's for like if you went to your if you went to your PCP. I mean, yours yeah. is lovely. She probably yeah, wouldn't she's do great. This, but yeah. if you went to uh, everyone should see her. I love her. To your, you know, an MD, and you said I'm allergic to dairy. They would just like think you're the craziest person, and that whoever told you that was absurd, right? And they're kind of right because it isn't an allergy. It's you know a different thing. But so allergy, we're gonna you know that's gonna be like IgE, which refers to an immediate sensitive, immediate reaction to something, and like like I said, throat closing up, anaphylaxis, you know emergent care kind of situation um, versus food sensitivity um, is still in, a, in the immune category, like the immune reactivity where it's more delayed, right? So this is where you'll get like a food panel back um, and it'll have usually a bunch of random stuff. And this is what people will bring to me and say, Dr. Coco, I can't have anything, you know, except for like three foods, right? And to me, those tests are really not very clinically helpful because all we're really typically doing with that is confirming leaky gut right? So what happens in our gut, if the lining, so we have what are called tight junction cells within the lining of our gut that are like these formidable, you know, kind of for, you shouldn't be able to breach that barrier. Um, food should not be getting into the blood from the gut, right? So when there's inflammation or when there's, you know, all kinds of things can kind of wreak havoc on the gut, but if those things are present, um, those, those cell, you know, kind of that barrier can get damaged and it can kind of start to fray. And so food can pass from the lumen of the gut into the blood and the immune system, the immune system doesn't like that for good reason, right? So it will start to create antibodies to those foods, um, which are more of a, like that delayed IgG kind of reactivity. So that's what we're really testing with a food sensitivity panel. Um, and, and the ones that you can usually get like the home kits, that's almost always what they are. Um, so when someone emails me or wants to come in and tells me, oh, I've had a food panel done and I'm allergic to allergic again, air quotes, to all these things, I'm really um, wary of that because I, I don't, you know, I, that's sort of, I'm already have a little bit of a red flag in my mind of like, well, is this really a problem or not? Because you're kind of, like I said, just confirming leaky gut. So what I was seeing clinically, and that's kind of historically been like the gold standard testing for natural medicine is looking at delayed sensitivity, IgG type responses. And to be totally fair, a lot of doctors have been able to seek good results with that. So I'm not poo-pooing anyone who does those or has good clinical outcomes with that. You know, there's lots of different ways to get to an end goal. But in my experience, what I was seeing more and more, which became very puzzling, was that we do those tests and people would feel better temporarily avoiding all these foods, which to me was always telling that scary line of triggering an eating disorder. Like when you tell someone all they can have is three or four foods, like that's not really lifelong sustainable. That's it kind of that's really the opposite of what our bodies need or want. And but we kind of I noticed that patients really like wear that as a badge of honor of like, oh, I'm restricting this, 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 and this. And, and my question is like, well, why? Like we want to be able to improve the gut health so that you can eat a variety of foods to feed your microbiome that's so critical so so i'm getting off topic a little bit because there's obviously so much here but no it's so great yeah that's looking at sensitivity like that delayed response so like you eat you know tomatoes and maybe two days later you have joint pain or a headache or something right um but you would see you would do this test remove these foods people would it's really hard to do it's very stressful it becomes depleting to the adrenal system the microbiome suffers and the patient may have some temporary relief of their you know most acute symptoms like maybe their diarrhea or their headaches or whatever and then you know, in three to six months, you see all that kind of coming back. And it's like, well, geez, what's happening? So you retest it and it's all new foods, right? So now you it's like you're constantly chasing your tail with that kind of thing, at least in my in my practice, that's what I found more and more. And so I started thinking about, okay, we're not, we're not really changing the underlying problem of what's what's driving the immune system attacking the food. Clearly the lining of the gut is still not better. Like we're missing something because the gut isn't healing and the body's now just reacting to new foods and whatever you're eating is going to show up on that panel. And at one point in my kind of own health 
crisis during your life, I was told I could only have brown rice based on one of those tests. And like, literally that's all I could have was just like brown rice. And the, the doctor was like, well, good luck. <laughs> have fun. I hope you like uh, brown rice. Yes. And it felt like I was just pushed off a cliff, you know, yeah. I'm kind of like wanted to give it a shot and it was horrible. And obviously I did it for like four days and then I was like, I'm going to die if I keep doing this. So I have kind of maybe, you know, a biased experience in that for several different reasons, but I just found that IgG testing, food sensitivity food sensitivity testing never yielded long-term clinical outcomes that I wanted. It just changed forms. Um, and then people over time think it doesn't work and natural medicine is like not legit. And, and that's fair because they're not getting better. And so it's frustrating anyway. So, you know, I, I do food intolerance testing. So I think of like allergy sensitivity and intolerance as kind of three separate mechanisms. Food intolerance testing gets more at like the underlying nature of kind of what foods can your body efficiently digest or not, which which is not really related to the immune system. It's more like a genetic thing. It can be mm. very much like hereditary, sure. um, you know, kind of like a lack of enzymes or things where you just like, no matter how hard you try, you can't, you can't really effectively break a food down. So I kind of liken it to if you were trying to eat a sandwich that was like wrapped in tinfoil, you right? Yeah, Claire's, you know, that, that's not really. Kyle, uh, I was just like hearing that make, uh-huh. gives me this horrible sensory. It makes my yeah. teeth hurt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as, as it yeah. should. Right. And so, so the, but the problem really lies in like, because your body as beautiful and like sweet and glorious as it is, tries to eat the tinfoil, right? It's like, okay, I'll do it. And it can't, right? It can't extract the the sandwich underneath because it's dealing with the toxicity of eating tinfoil. So it's really like the digestive process that kind of goes awry when we're eating foods or combination of foods that we just can't effectively deal with. And, and that's why my thinking of food has really shifted over the years of like, I don't really view any food as good or bad because I mean, we love to put moral judgments on food choices first and foremost, which is so outrageous. But for example, eggs, I find to be a very healthy food. If you can digest them, if you can't, they are not right. Um, same goes for just about anything that I've, I've seen now over the years is just that there really isn't a one size fits all approach to diet or to food for people. It's so individualized. Um, and I can't stress that enough because like, you know, we, for an example, I have a, I have a patient, a young patient, um, started seeing a few months ago and she, she's a digestive wreck and, and she had done a bunch of whole thirties in her life. And I actually find the whole 30 to be very like helpful for people. If they're kind of transitioning to going from like standard American diet to trying to learn about how to cook and eat food and start to put a lens on things. So I'd like, it can be used in certain situations. I don't necessarily like, you know, dislike the whole 30. I'm not saying that at all. But in this person's case, she's potato intolerant. So she did several whole 30s and was like sick as a dog the whole time because she was replacing all the other things that are like eliminated in that with potato. Um, it was very, very sick. And so again, it's like, I don't think anything's really wrong with, with whole 30, but if you don't like it, it's not going to be good for everyone, just like any other diet, like paleo or keto or whatever you kind of are out there as really trendy options aren't going to be good for everyone because everyone's genetic makeup is quite different. And so I think that's really important to consider when we're trying to make efforts to get ourselves in a better place is that don't be frustrated if you're doing something that's helped a lot of other people and you're not yielding results because probably there's something else there that hasn't been found um, that you just don't know about. So don't be disheartened if you've made efforts and they haven't you know, yielded the response that you want, like have hope, <laughs> uh, you know, but get potentially get some more information. So going off of a lot of what you just said around, you know, everybody, everybody really reacting so differently and a lot of nomenclature being really confusing and, you know, Mm -hmm. alluding to things that are not really what they seem as you're talking through all of this. And as you're talking through, you know, the differences in, 
even what Joy was doing and having to look at all these nuances for every single separate patient. I thought of a question that somebody asked, which was, can the body heal most things? Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Dr. Cook loves the body. You guys, like she, <laughs> the body's an amazing thing machine. She loves it. <laughs> so, Maybe okay. And, and I, work, well, I don't know, but it, yes, a hundred percent. And I feel almost like a little protective asking this question because I feel like there might be people who are listening who are like, I've been trying uh, and yeah. have this thing going on. And like, I just, you know, it feels shaming to hear that my body should be able to heal this and I haven't oh, been yeah. able to get there. So, you know, and maybe this person is like, and I, you know, my, my insurance doesn't cover a naturopathic doctor. I can't just go out and spend yeah. however many thousands of dollars getting this to work. And here I am with this autoimmune disease that I've been told I'll have my whole life. And, or a, a question that we got a couple of times with Joy talking about, you know, Hey, I just wanted to pursue this before I fried my thyroid where people who were like, I didn't know I had another option and my thyroid is already oh, fried. Yeah. You know, yeah. so how, I guess just, yeah, talk about that. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to even like frame it in a question. <laughs> just like talk about that. Um, so if, I mean, if I sound choked up, it's because like that question that you saying that actually brings tears to my eyes because it's like, it's, and this really hits a, like just a passion point, I think, because I see people all day, every day who think their bodies are broken and they are so far from being allied with themselves that they, you know, it, it's so distressing and it's so heartbreaking because you know, I, and I know I'm biased because all day, every day I get to see people get better um, and get to see a lot of really amazing things occur. Um, but my new patients, you know, they, they don't have that perspective. So they kind of have to trust my hope in the body, but it's so common for people to feel that, right. That they're doing all the right things and they've done, they've tried everything and they've done every diet and they've um, tried every supplement yet. They're still miserable. Right. And, and then I think what is the, probably the most difficult part of that process is that it starts to erode their relationship with their trust of their body. Um, and that is what we have to restore to heal. Okay. I always say we can't heal a body that we hate. And that's so, I say that probably multiple times a day. Um, and people, you know, when I talk about seeing them really often, especially in the beginning is because there's a lot of underlying psychological patterns that get in our way. So to restore that relationship with our body is perhaps the biggest work of all, you know, not, not really mattering about the diet or the supplements, or if you had no money, no access, and you lived in a cave in the middle of nowhere, if all you did was work on the relationship with your body and respecting it for the tremendous amount of work it does, like that would be better than anything you could ever do is to spend your effort working on that relationship. Because what we don't really get stuffed into our heads, which I'm like, I kind of joke, I'm like, I wish we learned this stuff in kindergarten, but we don't learn it, is that our body is always, always, always fighting to bring us in the best balance and find us like the most, you know, the most it can do with whatever we're giving it. So it's always working in our benefit despite, despite our actions, right? Because oftentimes we just don't know any better. So we can't really be judged or shamed for that because you can only do different when you know different. And we're just, we don't have access to that education or that knowledge really very readily. The internet's helping that to, you know, change, I think, but um, I sound really old when I just said that the internet, (laughs) the interwebs. Yeah. I I say Um, stuff like that all the time. No one gets my references anymore. So I'm like realizing I'm kind of getting old, but, but that's, so critical to work on that, like changing that perspective of from our body being this thing that's that's like our like our biggest obstacle and that's broken and then it can't be fixed and that like you know it's just kind of like you you hate it. Like changing that to to starting to see all the little ways that the body is trying to communicate with you and it's trying to ally with you and it is truly your best friend. And what and I say this a lot too is like 
our symptoms, the things we experience, the reason I don't want to band-aid those is because they are our biggest guiding light. They are our body's only communication mechanism. So when our body has a symptom, it's trying to tell us something, right? If it's a pain response, it's saying, hey, don't run on that broken leg. You're injured. You need to lay down, right? So it's it's trying to tell us what to do, but we don't know how to speak that language. And so if all I do for anyone is help them understand how to speak that language, you know, then I've done my job because really I feel like I'm sort of like a glorified like symptom interpreter in in medicine. I think that's kind of mostly what doctors are, you know, doing hopefully, but but to be able to like understand what your body is saying and communicating on a daily basis, like that's the key to freedom and to health, right? But I just like I can't if 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 anyone took nothing out of this conversation except for the fact that like your body is your best friend, you know, and treated as such, like that would be everything. So there's no supplement, there's no magic diet, there's no magic bullet of any sort, even, you know, lifestyle stuff. Really none of that matters if we don't repair that relationship with our body and treat it with love and kindness and respect because it is the coolest, most amazing thing. Yeah. Sorry, and I was just trying to get in before Joy because I think we're, we're both going off <laughs> mute. And I'm like, no, I'm going to talk. Because the follow-up I want to ask to that is, there's two. Sorry, Joy. No, I'm not sorry. Okay, my first question, my first follow-up to that is people who are listening who either for themselves or maybe more likely for a loved one were not able to heal them. You know, you got this diagnosis, you have terminal cancer, you have MS, you have, you know, something that has gotten to the point where your, you know, everything that conventional medicine has to tell you is saying this can't be healed. And, you know, I feel like hearing, yeah, your body can heal most things might feel very mm. almost like offensive. Yeah. You know, w- how do you, I guess, like, where is that line where sometimes with patients and do you, do you experience this where with patients, sometimes you do end up in a position of like, yeah, this is beyond what your body can heal. Yes. And I, that's a, you know, I appreciate you speaking up that point. Cause I think, um, that is really, really a big, a big component. And I mean, even kind of a personal component to that is that my, my fiance, his father just passed away from cancer. Right. So, you know, even with all of, all of the tools we have and all of the knowledge that his, you know, cause he, he, sought tons of treatments and lots of different things. And, um, and your fiance is also a naturopathic doctor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually, you know, I see, I see in him so much pain because he feels like he couldn't save his dad. Right. Um, so I think there's a point where like medicine isn't God. We don't know everything. In fact, we know very little about the body. I would argue, um, we know some (laughs) and with that, we do the best we can. And I would say that, in any regard of health or healing or wellness, to remove the shame from any of it, I think is really important because yes, there are things that for whatever reason that we will never be able to understand are out of our control, right? And so much of our life experience is in fact out of our control. And I think as humans, that's really challenging because we want to control things. But but yeah, absolutely. I mean, we in our clinical practice run into all the time people that we, you know, can't help for whatever reason. Like we are not perfect. We are not God. We can't help everyone. And there definitely are things beyond our understanding in terms of healing or not healing. And so while I say yes, you can heal most things, and I do believe 
unending in the body's capacity to heal, that doesn't mean that, you know, everything, everything gets repaired the way we want it. And that's perhaps like the most difficult part of medicine and being a healthcare provider is that you feel this responsibility to be able to have answers for all of those situations and to save every single person when in fact you can't. And a lot of it, you know, I think there's the aspect of time, there's the aspect of education, there's the aspect of, you know, doing like knowing even how to take care of our bodies from a basic basic level from an early age, we're just not really taught well. So by the time, you know, kind of speaking to, you know, my father-in-law who passed, it's like he didn't, by the time he got the tools that could have potentially helped him, you know, it, he didn't have a whole lot of time left. His body, his body was pretty far gone and, and there's not a whole lot you can do. And I think that's really difficult and something that I don't have an answer for. It's like with any medical profession where, someone passes away on the operating table, you know, like that's the whole, you're not God aspect of it. And there are some things that you'll, we'll never understand, but yeah, I'm mm-hmm. glad you, I'm glad, I'm glad you addressed that yeah. back to really quick. The, the piece about trusting your body and having confidence in your body and repairing that relationship with your body. I know a lot of people that's kind of like foreign to them. So um, I think that's like an, a discussion for another day too, but just for like my personal example was, you know, I caught what was happening with me really quickly because I knew something was off, but I am like, I joke with one of my best friends that I'm like a robot and we're always like, oh, the microchip is off. Like if you know, if you know <laughs> something is off or like microchip, we all say microchip because it's like, we just know that something is off with our bodies. And so I was very attuned to that. But when I first started seeing you, I just remember <laughs> being like, what if I'm the one person you can't help? And it's just, uh-huh. what if I'm the exception? I'm the special snowflake yeah. that just has like the weird thing going on with them. And I think that a lot of people probably feel that way too. Of just, it's really what it comes down to is I didn't trust my body in healing. And uh, I said this to you recently as well as like your trust in the body. I eventually got there too, because you're just, you were always like, yay body. Whenever like something would, a blood test would come back that had improved, or I was feeling better in this side aspect or I was gaining the weight back that I had lost. And we would always be like, yay, body, you know, like our body is just an amazing thing. Like the body is doing this. And you would always give, you know, the body credit and me credit. Of course, I'm like singing your praises, but you're just like, well, you're doing the work. I'm giving you the guide. You're doing the work and the body is doing the work. And it's just a really cool thing to witness. And I have to tell you, and maybe Joy will be embarrassed when I tell you this, is that every time that she would come see you, we would just, we have this group chat with myself, Joy and our friend Jess. We would just get like 10 minutes of text being like, I love my doctor, my naturopathic doctor so much. I feel so much better. Like every time I leave, I'm like, okay, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. Like things are going to work out. But I think what Joy said leads directly into the the second question I had, which was, I think particularly as women, we are very often discredited from listening to our own instincts about our bodies. And we are, it's so easy to talk ourselves out of, you know, going to the doctor when something just seems a little bit off and that we really minimize our own symptoms until it gets to the point where like you can't live your day-to-day life because it's so, you know, painful or disruptive or whatever the case may be. One thing that we always say, you know, with Joy always talking about like accessing accessing therapy is like there's no minimum requirement to go to therapy. Would you say the same thing about seeking out a naturopathic doctor or do you feel like, no, like you kind of have to have some symptoms or like a specific concern or even already have a diagnosis before going to that next level is going to be helpful for you? Um, That's a great question. And uh, if I got to see people who before they had a longstanding history of something 
serious going on, my job in life would be so much easier. So yes, it would be completely appropriate to seek naturopathic medicine or naturopathic doctor in conjunction, right? Integratively with the other people on your team, just as a place, you know, to land for general information and for questions and for routine screening things. And no, you don't need, and this is maybe one of the biggest myths out there is that you like have, you know, last ditch effort, go see the naturopathic doctor and see, well, what can you do for me now? Right. So most of the cases I see are like that, where, you know, maybe it's a 30 year history of, you know, an autoimmune condition. They're like, well, what have you got for me? Cause now I like the now conventional medicine's a thing I left off or I'm not responding to treatment. So what have you got? You know? So yes, my ideal world is one in which people would a know about alternative means of healthcare and have access to them both through insurance and just, you know, general speaking access, but and then to have to have that support before things are a problem, because in the situations where somebody is attuned to their body like a microchip, they get better so much faster and so much more, you know, robustly when the problem hasn't been going on for a long time. One of my late mentors always said, if you, you know, walk 40 miles into the forest, you can't walk out in one. And and I think that is very true. And so, I, and I try to be very honest about that with people of like the timeline and the process, and it's not just going to be overnight, but but yes, I mean, kind of wherever you are in the journey, I think is an appropriate time to to get help if you feel like that kind of, if that speaks to you. Really quickly, I want yeah. to say some things. I think what Claire brought up about the cases where the body didn't heal and how kind of traumatizing and triggering and shaming that is, I think is a really, such a critically important conversation and also a very hard one. Um, that's something that stuck out to me from one of my mentors who's like, kind of, it's kind of a legend, but kind of like a grumpy old man. So he's like, not the most bubbly fun guy, but I'm like, he's amazing. Um, he writes this column for one of the naturopathic doctor kind of like review journals and sort of like clinical like cases from the field, I think is what he calls it. And then when he's been in practice for like 40 plus years, I mean, the guy's seen everything. And I mean, if there was a, a case that I, you know, any kind of miracle cure, it's like, you want to send this guy, right? And I've, you know, been able to study with him, thank goodness. And anyways, but in this article, he's talking about one of his cases of a young girl with um, a brain tumor, a really rare one. Um, and his mom or the, the patient's mom, you know, was working with this doctor in addition to um, conventional treatments and kind of was doing everything she possibly could. And so, and they worked together for several years and they, it was very like back and forth in her progress. I think they gained more time um, and more quality of life but it was, it was a hard case and it spanned years and she eventually, you know, passed due to the illness. And it was obviously a very heartbreaking experience for everyone involved. And at the end of this article, when he's talking about it, you know, he said, he says, and it like made me cry when I read this, because I think it speaks to what many doctors feel when faced with those cases that we can't cure, we can't help. And we're, we're stuck with not having the right tools. And this guy, just keep in mind, he's been practicing for a billion years and he's an incredible physician. And at the end of this kind of case summary, he says, I need to learn more. I need to do better. And I, <laughs> I think that was just, I think as a doctor, it just struck me because you just like, you do the best you can with working with what you know the body can do, but it doesn't always go the way you want. And even someone who's been doing it his whole life and is an incredible, incredible physician to say, you know, without ego, I failed this case. And the, and the weight that carries, you know, as for the whole, the whole, everyone involved, it's like, 
it's really hard and there's no, there's no answers and we need to learn more. We need to do better. And that's kind of like ever since seeing that is sort of my mindset when I'm faced with a case that I am struggling with or the patient's struggling. And I am like, I need to learn more. I need to do better. And I think that's what drives a lot of doctors to continue in the face of heartbreaking situations that we can't help. So I don't know if that is at all helpful, but it just came to my mind when we were talking about that, that I wanted to share. That's so great. And I think it's that, I mean, that's so powerful and I think that it is something that resonates with anyone who's ever been in a helping profession, but to have it, I mean, you know, it resonates with me just from the perspective of like being someone who anytime someone comes to me and says, Hey, this is my problem. I want to be able to be like, okay, I fixed it. Here you go. Mm -hmm. And let alone to have that problem be a terminal illness, Yeah, you know, that to, to have that responsibility placed in your hands how intense that would be and that, but I, I hope that it's also validating for some people to hear that. Like, I hope it's very, I hope it's validating for people to hear that. Like, yes, your body is so powerful and amazing and capable and is your best friend. And it's, you need to, you know, it's worth the, it's worth the trust and it's worth the effort and it's worth the attempt because your body is capable of so much more than you think it is, or that you've been, than you've been told that it is. And I hope it's validating for people to hear that, like, still sometimes it's not going to work out. Yeah. I just would hope that anyone listening that's experienced the non-healing side of things throws away the shame and the guilt and feeling like it's their fault or that, you know, any of that, because it's, there's just not always answers. And I just really, I wanted to just speak to that because I think that's such an important component for people who may be listening that are frustrated with hearing the body's so great. (laughs) Right, right. And speaking, there's there's like a guilt question that someone wrote mm-hmm. in and I want to get to, um, yeah. we're running out of time, around taking Synthroid for Hashimoto's because they're like, I have a lot of guilt for taking that. Is it okay to not treat holistically? And I feel like everything that we've said in this conversation is like, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, so can you speak to that as far as people's guilt around taking a Western approach? It, just because I had success with a naturopathic doctor in treating Graves disease doesn't mean people who are like, there's no, I'm not better than anybody for, you know, one of us. Yeah. And I think, and this is why remember I said earlier, like there's so many like psychological layers to all of this. It's not just as simple as a physical symptom and the physical diagnosis and the physical treatment, right? It's layered and complicated within psychology even. So, and I hear these words like guilt and shame coming up a lot, even just in this conversation, which is something I, here all day, every day too. And it's just like, again, it breaks my heart because I'm like, there's no space for that. And I wish we could eradicate those feelings from our health struggles and our and our experiences with those that we love with health struggles, because it, it just does, it doesn't serve anyone. And, and yes, absolutely. Right. Like you are not a failure if you're taking medication for your disease, right? Like, again, it's, utilizing the best of what we have out there to get a person healthy and feeling good. It's like if you're on Synthroid and you're the best you've ever felt because you're taking care of your thyroid in that way, like that's like empowering, good for you. Like there's nothing wrong with that. There's no, you should not, natural isn't, isn't inherently superior to conventional care because it's natural, right? Some people are only, um, only a candidate for natural therapies because their bodies are too sensitive for for conventional or pharmaceutical grade stuff, right? There's a whole spectrum of how we are as individual people with different genetics and different experiences. And and, and you can't compare yourself to other people, you know, especially in the context of um, you did this thing and got better and I have the same condition and I'm doing this and it's different. Is, it, is my experience lesser? Hell no, right? 
there's no space for that. Um, you do you, right? It, live your life and take care of yourself and and there's nothing wrong with that. And again, that's where I say like with with any doctor shouldn't be pushing their agenda on somebody. So it's like if I maybe would personally choose to um, treat something naturally and I have a patient with the same thing who wants to do medication, like that's their choice. And medicine should be, doctors, should, their role should be to educate their patients around all treatment options, not one or the other. So even as a natural provider, I'm educating my patients on their conventional options too and saying, here's what we're looking at and all of our choices from this side of the coin and that we can use use both one or the other, or, you know, any mixture in between, um, here's what that might look like in this context and that, like, what do you want to do? Right. It's up, it's up to the person. And I think we lose a lot of that medical autonomy because we assume doctors are these all knowing kind of tyrant gods who have all the answers. And really at the end of the day, no doctor will know your body better than you do. And no doctor will ever know the best treatment for you. Um, when you're when you're able to be faced with all the options. And I think what you kind of spoke to Joy earlier is just that most people aren't really exposed to other options. They're really only told one way and that's, you know, one way or the highway or, oh, we don't, diet won't matter. It doesn't make, make any make any difference in your condition. And so I think at the end of the day, what we need to be thinking, not so much like supplements versus drugs, it should be looked at, are we educating patients on all of their options? And giving them the information based on their makeup and their constitution and their experiences to see what would be the best fit for that person. I feel like what I'm hearing over and over again in this interview is just like, it's not either or, it's not conventional versus natural. It's what is the best option for you that's going to be the most sustainable long-term and that's truly going to, like the the analogy I always use is like, it's going to put out the fire instead of just turning off the smoke alarm. That's like, what is truly going to get to the root of what's happening and or, you know, provide the most effective and sustainable in a true sense of the word, like sustainable to your lifestyle and your situation and your budget and et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that for for joy her immediate reaction was like, I need to know. And we've talked about this. I've said this line on this podcast probably 10 times now. Joy never said, I will never, you know, I will never go down the radiation path because it's stupid and I hate it. You know, Joy said, radiation sounds extreme to me. I want to try some other things first. Yeah. And that is really what I'm just hearing so much in what you're saying is like, it's not about saying that these other options are wrong. Correct. It's about saying like, there might be other choices available to you. And if you want to pursue that, mm-hmm. here's some information. And with all the facts, what makes like, what sounds good to you, you know, and, and another thing to point out, like with, with that context of like, natural versus not, <laughs> uh, sometimes what we're doing for people is using natural therapies to get their body strong enough for the surgery they need, right? Like some people that I've seen need a surgery to save their life and they are not a candidate for that surgery for various reasons. And so we get them to that point so they can have a life-saving surgery. It's again, it's using the best of all we have available to get a person healthy. And and it, it's, it's there's no hierarchy of importance or um, again, moral judgment of like right or wrong natural versus not. It's like, I think we just have so much charged, so much charge in these words in the nomenclature. And I think that's, you know, a, a really sad problem. Okay. So let's wrap up with, and I feel like this is a loaded question, but let's try to not make it a loaded question. <laughs> okay. What are some things that you would very broad strokes recommend anyone could do any, any person without, you know, a known underlying diagnosis without, you know, known, um, 
um, what's that word when things are where you shouldn't do stuff? Um, Restriction? Contraindications. <laughs> contraindications. Without known contraindications could do today and moving forward to help support their body. Aside from the thing earlier that we talked about, which is get in a great relationship with your body. Yeah. Right. That's, what that's are number like one. <laughs> tips and tricks. Yeah. Um, that's so funny because everyone wants to ask this question. And I'm like, oh, I got a bunch <laughs> for you. Um, but I would say like succinctly, um, hydrotherapy is probably <laughs> like my maybe number two thing because if you have access to running water and some towels or even just running water, you can pretty much do hydrotherapy, um, which may be a whole other podcast topic. I'm not sure. Um, as Jordan knows, I'm a huge hydrophonetic. Um, I've talked about it a lot. Yeah. It's just an incredible therapy. And hydrotherapy also is like a very, like a large umbrella term for many different types of like water treatment kind of therapies, but hydrotherapy, whether that can be done like in your shower, right? If you want to, at the end of your shower, alternate between hot and cold temperatures of water and always end on cold. That's a very simple way every single day or every day that you're showering, you could do that, right? If you have access to like a sauna or a hot tub or something of that nature, you could do sauna or a hot tub alternating with a cold shower back and forth. Like that's kind of a fun thing for people to do when they have, if they're in a spa kind of environment. You know, we live near a creek that has snow melt running through it all year. So it's always freezing. So we'll do hydrotherapy outside of just dunking in the river, you know, doing jumping jacks and heating up and jumping back in the creek. There's lots of ways you can do it that you don't have to have access to like the fancy machine that we use that we pair with it, or even all the tools to do like the full kind of medical treatments of hydrotherapy. I mean, it could be as simple as doing it in the shower. And that's what I'll have a lot of people do who maybe don't have access to more um, fancy tools. So there's hydrotherapy, which I'm like, there's so much more I want to say on that, but I know I shouldn't even start because I'll get on a long tangent about it because I'm a huge nerd. But the other one I would say that's like really underrated and that we hear a lot about, but like don't really know why it matters is to drink water. Like for God's sake, please drink water. <laughs> um, Do we have to drink eight glasses a day? Like what's have, the... You, so the rule is like half your body weight in ounces. Okay. Um, so for like a 140 pound person, that'd be about, you know, 70 ounces a day of, you know, purified remineralized water, not sparkling. I've never heard remineralized before. What does that mean? So like if you're doing filtered water or reverse osmosis, which I kind of recommend because most of our water quality is like pretty terrifying. Um, so if I'm drinking like Colorado tap water, what do I need to do? So Colorado tap water probably, I mean, I would filter it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I probably, you're not going to I'm not going to do that, but that I appreciate se. the suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say like for those that are drinking really highly purified water, this becomes a problem because as you're purifying the water and extracting like the more toxic stuff, you're taking all the good stuff too. So, so Soleil water? So Soleil water is a really easy one. Um, <laughs> And you can, you can find instructions on it online, S-O-L-E, I posted water. it a lot. I'll post a oh, link okay. in the show notes yeah. for this too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could, I don't know if you have the handout, I can send you my PDF or whatever, but yeah, online yeah. you can find info about it. It's just a simple way to basically provide your body with the essential minerals you need that you, that should be in your water that are going to be in Claire's tap water <laughs> along with all other things. But we really, really need those minerals to, to absorb the water. So if we're doing highly purified water, you need to add minerals back in some way, whether that's going to be sole water or like a, you know, there's lots of different mineral mixes and things you can do. Most of them taste really bad. So I like the sole because you can kind of dilute it and make it a little bit more palatable. But I've seen a lot of people who are drinking a ton of water and are actually demonstrating like all the signs of dehydration because they're drinking like reverse osmosis water without any minerals ever back in their diet. So they're like kidneys can't take up the water appropriately. So we actually need those electrolytes to be able to hydrate from the water we consume. So there's kind of two steps to water, drink enough of 
actual water and then also have the minerals necessary to be able to do something with it. But like spring water or like Eldorado Springs is probably my favorite water. It's kind of like fancy and a little bit expensive. but I you, love that water too. It's, it's so my good. favorite. Yeah. Yep. It just tastes like you feel like water should taste. But you know, in some instances, I'm like, I'd rather people will drink tap water than purified water if they're not going to mineralize it. <laughs> so uh, that's actually a pretty, pretty important component to hydration. I was one that growing up like didn't like everyone always tells you to drink water, but no one really tells you why. And so as a rebel, it was like, well, don't tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. So it wasn't until I kind of understood why we need it and how it like all the things it does. I mean, even just the effects it has on mental health. Um, like I can't tell you how many people I've seen who literally just by getting them hydrated, like 80% of their symptoms got better without having to do much or spend any money. So hydration is a really, really important thing, but kind of hydration plus minerals. Another really like simple kind of day-to-day trick that I like to to work on really anything for lymphatic circulation and flow because our lymph really doesn't pump itself. It kind of relies on us to do things to move it. So some easy things you could do are dry skin brushing. Um, you're welcome to post my handout on that. It's, you could probably find information about it online as well. Just and really I didn't know to... what the lymph was. I thought it was like I one know, thing. Yeah. Yeah. No one really does. And it's actually like a really critical uh, system in our body that is designed to do a lot of really important uh, detox work. So, but you can, I mean, some people use like those rebounders, like those little mini trampolines or they'll bounce on those. That's a good one. Um, those drive me crazy. It's like, I can't physically do them for some reason. It just like, I get bored and too ADHD and I'm like, I can't bounce on this thing. So um, I like skin brushing, honestly, like gentle, just like low key walking, like not power walking, not trying to get a, like a burn or a high intensity exercise, but just like moving your body in gentle ways, stretching, uh, hydrotherapy moves the lymph. So like kind of water, water, minerals, lymphatic support via whatever method makes sense. Hydrotherapy. Those are some of the, like probably my, I don't know, top three favorite things to really incorporate day to day. Um, cause they don't take much time. I mean, it's like the equivalent of just like even less time then, but like kind of the equivalent of like brushing your teeth every day. If you don't brush your teeth, your teeth are going to rot out. You probably should brush your teeth. Like you should probably move your body, support your lymph, drink water and do those kinds of things. So Hot, cold showers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the hydrotherapy, with the alternating, you definitely always want to end on cold, which is what it's not as comfortable. Shies away from. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. that's what actually, womp, womp. but yeah. it doesn't have to be like freezing cold, right? Like you Correct. can walk up to it. Yes. Yeah. I'm a huge baby about cold water. So when I was first doing it, I would do just like hot water and then kind of tepid, like lukewarm water to just have the change in temperature gradient. Because oh. I like to end my showers with like a couple of seconds under like boiling, scalding hot water. Yeah. Yeah. I do you that. and I are like, yeah. So <laughs> I've had to really like, and again, this is where for someone with like a rebel tendency, I think being like understanding the, and probably for anyone, honestly, but understanding the why behind things really helps to make changes because I wouldn't, if I didn't understand what the lymph does and why hydro supports it, I probably wouldn't bother with cold water, but it's important to end with cold and even just like a short, like mildly cold, because that's what basically is going to send the blood back into it's like central circulation where we want it for our organs versus like the hot because it dilates the blood vessels sort of pushes the blood out to the periphery whereas we want to send that back into you know the gut and all the organs in our abdomen so the cold's very important that's how we end on it but you can make you can kind of work yourself up to to colder water like if you're like me just do it slowly over time and and that's that. And then how about seed cycling for women? Is that something every woman could do or is that specific to certain candidates? So I would say there are certain digestive um, diagnoses that would not really be a good candidate for that, you know, based on um, like if they have you know, diverticulitis or certain IBD situations, I might not recommend um, seed cycling. There's other ways we can kind of get the effect of that through like 
less harsh ways potentially on the GI tract. Um, and eventually usually those people are able to do it, but sometimes early on, it's not really the, it can be a little bit aggravating. So most situations, if you, if you've ever been told like not to eat, you know, small seeds for a reason due to like pockets in your large intestine, like don't do seed cycling probably, but because they're ground, I mean, honestly, it is pretty safe, but I would say if you're not being monitored or like it kind of educated about it from someone who knows what they're doing in the context of your case, it might be potentially in some GI situations, not, not the best because it is important that you grind them. And some people won't realize that. So they'll eat them whole. And so if you have different digestive complaints that can make things a little bit worse. So grinding into like a fine powder is really, really an important part of the process. But generally speaking, seed cycling is fantastic for, for, and honestly, even men can do it, but, but for women, especially with any kind of you know, menstrual concerns. And this is kind of funny because I've been telling women to do seed cycling for a long, long time. And, and it's funny how people like, well, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, what do you, what do you know? And then they'll like come back weeks later and be like, oh, I read about seed cycling in this cookbook I got. I'm going to do it. And I'm like, great. I've only been trying to get you to do this for like six months. If, and now you're going to do these, it. If only someone had recommended this to you six I months know. ago. So weird. So yeah, I love it. You know, I think kind of going back to what you said, Claire, um, about just women not being very validated in healthcare. It's like, that's another like huge topic of interest to me. It's just like how medically negligent uh, we are to women still in this day and age. Um, and seed cycling, like for teens and like, you know, before, before um, girls are even going into their menstrual cycle, that's a really good way to help balance things leading up to that. Because a lot of girls will have pretty awful periods to start with. And then their only options are like birth control when they're 14 years old, which causes like a whole slew of other um, nutrition deficiencies and microbiome issues and all kinds of stuff. So we can help with really gentle, simple food-based things to, you know, give young girls a better fighting chance to have a healthy period and not have to be put through the ringer because they're in so much pain, they can't function, right? So I would say it's a great tool for, um, you know, young teen girls and for adults. And I even have people seed cycling like five years after menopause, even just to help continue that circadian rhythm of the hormones. Cause it's, you know, as, as we women know, there's a, a lot of fluctuation of hormones through a whole long cycle that there's kind of a, com a complicated mix of things that seed cycling is so simple and so cheap, um, but so effective, but it has to be done regularly. It's one that I'm like, it's not a lightning bolt therapy. Consistency is key. You're going to see the benefits if you do it over time, not if you do it one day a week for a few weeks. Oh my gosh. I just am like, there's, this was such a great discussion and I'm really excited to do this again, especially around the diet culture. So listeners can submit their questions for that too. Yeah. This has just been really great. And I'm so, I mean, you know how much, how grateful I am for you and the work you did for me, but also just how, how passionate you are for this field. This is your passion and your heart. This is not something you take lightly. <laughs> People's health in your hands every single day and you you just take such great care of your patients. So we'll post all of the links that we talked about today in the show notes so listeners can um, check out everything that we discussed as, and um, how to look up naturopathic doctors in your area. So listeners, thank you guys so much again for this great discussion. And we'd love to hear your feedback. You know where to email us. This is joyandclare at gmail.com. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.